And we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Today is the monthly visit of Nan Calvert from Root Pike Wynn. And uh, Nan has secured for us a very interesting guest to join us, namely PJ Leash, who is director of the uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison Insect Diagnostic Laboratory. And we're going to be talking today about insects and, and in particular, the way in which people can make certain choices in their lawn and garden to be more inviting to insects. And of course, we're thinking especially of certain important and beneficial insects that we want to have around us. Um, and so uh, we'll talk a little bit first to Nan about what prompted her to make this uh, invitation to PJ Leash, and, uh, and then we'll dig into all kinds of interesting things. So Nan Calvert and PJ Leash, we welcome both of you to the morning show. Well, thank you. Good morning, everybody. Good to be here. And if you hear some squeaks in the background, it's so uh, I, puppy I, um... Billy who's playing and having fun. So anyway. So, yes, and you so may hear rooster noises in the background here, so. Okay, so we're full of, full of natural wonders. So Nan, uh, tell our listeners what prompted you to want to issue this invitation and have a conversation about this. Well, um, a couple of things. So in general, if one is interested in native plants, <laughs> of course I am, uh, you are also interested in our native insect populations because they go hand in hand. Uh, and then more specifically, Root Pike Watershed Initiative Network is involved in a project called the Pollinator Patch Program. And we are um, working on restoration work, particularly and especially within the UW Parkside campus uh, that will cater to, if you will, our native pollinators, and most especially uh, the rusty patched bumblebee. And by the way, there's some very exciting news. We did have a confirmed sighting of a rusty patched bumblebee in one of the restoration areas on the UW Parkside campus. Uh, that insect would have been quite common at one point in time, but as many people know now, uh, it has precipitously declined over the last 20 years. And when we have a decline in our native pollinators, we then have a decline in native plants, but we also have a decline in uh, food crops uh, that human beings use to thrive and survive. And so it's imperative, uh, not only for uh, the, the world that we share with other living things, but also specifically for us as well to uh, do whatever we can to uh, support and encourage the survival of these insects. Um, we are bombarded by advertisements in print media and television and radio about getting rid of insects in our environment. Um, and I, I wanted to be able to um, do something uh, about that message to counteract that message. And the best way to do that is to have someone who is an expert and actually a well-known expert in Wisconsin about our native insects. And so the reasons I wanted to have PG. Insects are a good thing. We need them. Um, and we need to make our, our properties insect friendly for our, our native um, populations of insects, our beneficial insects. 
Very good. So, PJ Leash, we're glad that you can join us to uh, uh, bring your expertise, combine it with Nan's expertise, and uh, so we can have a, a really interesting conversation about this. Um, before we dig into the theme, let's find out a little bit about you, where you are from originally, and uh, how you found your way into the field, generally speaking, of entomology. Sure. So uh, I'm a Wisconsin native. I actually grew up in southeastern Wisconsin in Franksville in, in northern Racine County. Um, went to uh, Case High School in, in Racine. And then for undergrad, I actually went to UW-Parkside and uh, did a biology degree there. I, I spent a lot of time outdoors as a kid. Um, we had a, a pond in our yard that we shared with a dairy farm. So I was always out there catching frogs, catching salamanders, catching fireflies. Um, so I, I really grew up uh, appreciating um, just nature and biology in general. I used to really enjoy flipping through um, golden field guides to insects or seashores, that sort of thing. So that, that really kind of uh, captured my attention and, and kind of planted the seed. Um, really fell in, in love with biology in high school, um, taking um, several biology classes then. And, and so I knew from day one when I went to UW-Parkside that I wanted to be a, a biological sciences major. And so I, I went through, um, completed that degree, and actually right around that time, I had a general interest in entomology. Um, I also loved uh, chemistry, like organic chemistry at the time, and so I had these two kind of, of competing routes uh, with my life, but uh, entomology won out. That was right around the time that Emerald Ashbor um, had showed up in the U.S., and it wasn't in Wisconsin at the time. It was in places like Michigan, um, but uh, folks were starting to look for it in the state. And so back in about 2005, um, I got linked up with a, a researcher here at UW-Madison, um, and uh, I did two summers of um, kind of an intern type position surveying for um, ash trees and, and signs of emerald ash, where we didn't uh, find it at the time with those particular types of surveys, but that got my foot in the door. That led to my graduate work at UW-Madison, uh, actually studying uh, June bugs or May June beetles um, with that same advisor that I was working with um, when I was at UW-Parks. And then after that, uh, I uh, worked for a couple of years as a, a researcher um, in the entomology department on campus. And then back in 2014, I transitioned over um, to uh, serving as director of the diagnostic lab uh, because the uh, uh, previous individual that was running the lab, Phil Pelletieri, who was uh, very, very well known for his position, um, he had been in the position 34, 35 years or so, and his he was retiring. So I simply uh, was able to um, uh, get that position on an interim basis, went through the interview process, and uh, I've been doing it now for about seven years at this point. Wow. Yeah, you stepped into some big shoes there, and uh, particularly as far as public radio listeners are concerned, because uh, Phil was a very frequent uh, guest on Wisconsin Public Radio over the course of so many years, and a whole lot of people know that name very, very well, as, of course, they're starting to know your name also. So as a researcher, what kind of things would you explore? Well, so the, the lab that I worked for worked um, primarily with insects of kind of urban, uh, suburban areas, uh, lawns, um, ornamental plants, so flowers and yards and, and things like that, both native and, and non-native. And uh, we studied a lot of various pests uh, that occurred in those systems and, and we're looking for methods to help control those pests in ways that we could also minimize uh, pesticide uses um, when it comes to some of those things. 
Tell us a little bit more about the purpose of the diagnostic laboratory that you, you head up. First of all, uh, that term diagnostic is kind of an intriguing term. What kind of diagnosis are we talking about that the laboratory engages in? Sure, good question. So um, essentially, I help identify insects and other arthropods for people. Um, and, and a reason for that, um, if you are seeing um, something maybe crawling around in your house, uh, you may want to know, is it uh, a pest that is going to keep causing problems for you? Is it something that simply snuck in and is completely harmless? Often a lot of the commonest questions I get are along the lines of, is this dangerous for me or my kids? Is it going to harm my plants? Or my pet, that sort of thing. Um, and, and so I'm simply a, a resource that is uh, free of cost to help folks around the state of Wisconsin to help identify things. And also, if you do have a pest um, that maybe needs to be managed, it's always critical to really know exactly what you're dealing with so you can make the most informed decisions about it. For those of you just joining us, today is Nan Calvert's monthly visit to the morning show. And uh, joining her, joining us, is PJ Leash, who is director of UW's Insect Diagnostic Laboratory. Um, so PJ Leash, what uh, Nan was hoping we could have a conversation about today, among other things, is uh, the idea of creating lawns and gardens that can sort of foster the most beneficial sorts of insects uh, especially those that uh, might have populations that are in decline. Ahead of us kind of digging into that, uh, what about kind of the whole notion of, I mean, Nan alluded to this in her opening remarks that, uh, you know, somebody might hear the, the, the phrase, yes, the, creating a garden that attracts more insects. It's like, well, why do I want to do that? I mean, do, I, do we really need more ants? Do we really need more mosquitoes? I mean, so often when we think of insects around us, we don't, think of them in beneficial positive terms we think of insects that are are a nuisance um how would you have us think about just the whole world of insects and do we need more of all of them or more of some of them i mean sort of how discerning do we need to be in terms of what what populations to foster and nurture versus other populations that we maybe should be trying to curb for one reason or another. Yeah, so when it, it comes to insects, just to kind of set the stage, so worldwide, we know of over a, a million different species, and there are, of course, many more undescribed species, perhaps several million more. Um, here in Wisconsin, we have somewhere in the ballpark of maybe 20,000 to perhaps 25,000 different species. Um, as you mentioned, Greg, um, when people think about insects, they often think of them in a negative light uh, in terms of being a pest that maybe bites or damages plants or sneaks in their home and causes problems. But in the grand scheme of things, for both a worldwide basis and again also here in Wisconsin, um, the number of species, the percentage of species that are actually pests is going to be very, very low. Um, you know, probably under 5% of, of all the insects certainly are, are going to be pests. So the vast majority are simply out in the ecosystem doing their things. And in many situations, these are really beneficial creatures. They provide some critical, um, what we would refer to as ecosystem services. Uh, a very simple way to think of that is something mother nature does for us so that we don't have to. Um, if, for example, all the insect pollinators disappeared, um, 
you or I might be employed as a pollinator. We may have to take a little paintbrush and go from one flower to the next just to pollinate our, our food crops. Um, that's going to be very tedious, backbreaking work to do that. Luckily, we have many, many, many insects that do those sorts of things for us so they can serve in beneficial roles as pollinators, as predators or parasites that help control some of the, the bad crop pests. Um, in general, we can think of, of many insect species as recyclers. They help break down um, dead or decomposing plant or animal matter. Um, so they really help return some of those nutrients to the soil and to the ecosystem in general. Um, they can do many, many other, other good things as well in terms of tunneling through the soil, bioturbation, basically mixing of soil nutrients and things like that, many other things as well. So. Um, the roles that they play really go underappreciated, um, but they really do play some critical roles for us outdoors in the ecosystem. Nan Calvert, in your opening remarks, you touched on the matter of, of native plants versus native insects and the connection between them. Uh, we'll have PJ expound on that in just a moment, but uh, let's have you just say a word about that relationship uh, as somebody who uh, is uh, a well-known expert in native plants. What, what is the relationship between native insects and native plants? And to what extent are we doing things that are, in a sense, disrupting or interrupting that relationship? Well, that's such a great question, Greg. Um, and I, I have a specific example, and it's one that I often begin presentations with. So. <clears throat> I, I think of plants as the intercessors between earth and sky. And one example of that is a plant that you don't get to see very often. It's called skunk cabbage. And um, it's a really interesting looking plant. Um, and it comes up when there's still snow on the ground. It's still cold, you know, it's the end of February, it's the beginning of March. We're all still wearing our long underwear. And yet this plant is in full bloom during that period of time. Uh, and so in order to be in full bloom during that period of time, that takes an extravagance. So why, why would a plant do that? Well, this plant in particular actually produces its own heat. And there are very few plant species that do that. So it has a very unusual shape. There's almost a hood on the outside called a spathe, and then the fruiting body on the inside where there's nectar is called a spadix. So inside that hood or spathe, it can be at least 30 degrees warmer than the ambient air temperature. So if it's 30 outside, it can be around 50 or 60 inside that plant. Why would a plant do that? Well, because there are early emerging insects during that period of time. And insects need to have a certain temperature in order to fly about. And so they can dart into that plant, get some nectar, get a little warmer, go back outside and do what it is they're supposed to do, which is meet and greet and create more insects. So we have this plant that's blooming at what seems like an unusual time of year. And we have little insects flying around at what seems like an unusual time of year, and yet it isn't because there are early returning migratory bird species coming back and they need protein. And that protein comes in the form of insects. And so without that plant available to those insects, that form of protein 
wouldn't be available to those birds that have expended an enormous amount of energy migrating uh, back here in order to set up shop and nest and produce their young. So our native plants and our native insects have a, a very um, intertwined, intimate relationship with one another. Insects pollinate the plants, the plants uh, support the insects, um, and of course, insects are the basis of uh, the protein food chain uh, that so many animals need to survive. Uh, there are countless examples of those kinds of things in, in the native plant world, uh, but that's just one of, uh, one of them that I think is most interesting. PJ Leash, do you want to expand on what Nan was just kind of spelling out uh, and you know, maybe give uh, an example or two of your own that you think are, are, are especially interesting? Sure. I mean, uh, that was a great example with the, the skunk cabbage. And that's just a, a really cool plant and a really cool story, by the way, Nan. I mean, think about that plants generating heat um, to potentially melt snow um, to get a kind of a head start on things. And, and you're absolutely right that um, we may not be thinking often of insects that time of the year, but um, you can go out basically any day of the year in Wisconsin. If you know where to look, you can find um, insects out there. They may be hiding under the snow and, and locations like that. If it's a mild winter day, even if it's uh, say in the 20s, there can be insects that are out crawling, flying, and, and so on. Um, in terms of that interrelatedness of native plants and, and insects, you're absolutely right. I mean, think about this, um, you know, since the, the last ice age that kind of flattened a lot of the state, those glaciers receded. And then those uh, native plants that were here, they of course expanded their ranges and, and got into new areas. But um, those plants have evolved with uh, the corresponding insect species for very long periods of time. So they have some very, very close relationships in, in terms of insects relying on and, and utilizing very specific plants. And so they have these these very cool relationships. Um, another example I kind of thought of that uh, uh, jogged my memory in terms of the, the early um, in the year topic in spring or, or late winter, um, you will get, uh, and what made me think of this, Nan, was the migrating birds. And so you will get uh, birds such as uh, sap suckers, which are pecking holes to drink sap out of trees. And uh, when that sap starts oozing, you'll get all kinds of other insects that go to the sugars that are there. And then the insects that are there can serve as food source for other things. So um, that was one of the, the benefits or ecosystem services I had mentioned earlier, but insects serve a very uh, important role as the base of both terrestrial and aquatic food webs. Um, mm -hmm. So we need these native plants so that uh, the native insects have the most appropriate food for them. And again, that's they're serving as uh, a lot of food for uh, birds, for fish, for other organisms out there uh, as well. You know, uh, thanks for asking that question, Greg, because that made me think of something else as well. And of course, PJ, uh, I would love for you to chime in on this. And it's the topic of galls, G-A-L-L-S, galls, which is a whole, you know, other uh, avenue of study for <laughs> studying insects. Um, so oftentimes in the summer, you'll see tree leaves or plant leaves. And on one side or the other, they have these little projections <laughs> for lack of a better word, coming off of them. They're various and sundry shapes, various and sundry colors. And the, the mind-blowing thing to me is that an insect was able to lay her egg in between the 
the um, layers of a leaf. You know, you look at a leaf and you don't think of it as having layers, but in point of fact, it does. And it doesn't hurt the plant. It's just a place for this insect's uh, larva to develop and then eventually hatch out and go on and do whatever it is it's going to do. And, it, and it's especially easy to see in Canada goldenrod because often on the stem, there'll be a round outpouching. And what's happened is that an insect has laid her egg within the stem of the plant. It doesn't hurt the goldenrod at all. The stem just develops around it and the larva is in there and it becomes an important source of food actually for our overwintering birds. They can peck right in there and eat the larva um, before it actually hatches out. So there are lots of examples of this sort of, um, it's not symbiotic, but it certainly is an interrelatedness of plants and insects. Galls are so fascinating. <laughs> There's so many different ones to look at. It's really interesting to me. Well, they, they definitely are. And, and I would add to that, if you think about um, goldenrod galls that you had mentioned, and first of all, it, it's kind of a neat way that you can identify goldenrod plants during the middle of winter. It, it literally looks like the plant stem swallowed a ping pong ball. If you can imagine <laughs> that analogy, there's just this big round ping pong ball size swelling in there. And of course, there's the fly that's developing in the middle of that gall. You can also get this entire micro scale ecosystem in there because you'll have the insect that formed the gall. You can have other insects that don't hurt that particular gall forming insect. They just live in the same general gall. They'll utilize that environment called inquilines. And then we can have some predators or parasites in there too. So if you were to go out and collect like a hundred of these galls and start dissecting them, you're not just going to bump into one native species of insect. You're going to bump into lots and lots of different ones there, just in this tiny plant gall, which is maybe about an inch in diameter. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> so fun to uh, learn about these aspects of, of the natural world that most of us know nothing about uh, and don't even know enough to be curious about. So <laughs> glad we can have this conversation. For those of you just joining us, today is the monthly visit of Nan Calvert to The Morning Show. And with us, we're so pleased to have PJ Leash, who is with UW's Insect Diagnostic Laboratory. And um, we're talking uh, now for the next few minutes about uh, what we can do to help foster uh, some of the most beneficial insects in, in our world that for various reasons uh, are seeing their populations in, in steep decline. And I think one of the most important things for us to talk about is uh, when we're talking about the most important and effective pollinators. Uh, so PJ Leash, maybe you could say a word about this whole process of pollination and uh, kind of the sort of circle of life that we're talking about in terms of plants and insects and, and, and how the whole process of pollination most efficiently occurs, at least as far as Mother Nature is concerned. And then we'll talk about the ways in which that has been curbed or undermined uh, by, by man. Sure. So if you think about pollination in, in general, it simply means you're getting pollen moving from uh, one plant to the flower of another plant. And that's going to fertilize the plant and then cause the fruiting structures of that plant um, to develop. Now, with some plants, this is a, a process that occurs primarily by wind and insects either aren't involved or, or maybe tangentially involved just to a limited extent 
but there are many, many techs are either required or they really help out the process drastically. So if you think about some of our, our fruit crops, for example, you might get a little bit of wind pollination, but the plants or, or the fruits that develop may be rather small or misshapen, but you throw some insects into the mix that do the pollination and that's when you get the, the nice big fully formed apples or strawberries or, or other plants. So those insects, um, are playing this very critical role of moving pollen from one flower to another and, and fertilizing those plants. Now, when we think of pollination, um, what folks probably think of first and foremost is bees. And, and often when people think of bees, they think of the honeybee, which technically is not native to North America. It was introduced from um, Europe with settlers when they came over across the Atlantic. Um, it does play important roles in agriculture in the state, for example, but again, it's not a native species. Um, when we think about our bee situation here in Wisconsin, we actually have about four to 500 bee species. Um, so the European honeybee is one species, then we've got these hundreds and hundreds of other uh, bee species. Most of those are going to be native. We do have some other non-native species as well, but bees, for example, can play really important roles with pollination. But uh, many other insects get overlooked for their importance in this role of pollination. Um, beetles, for example, can be important pollinators in, in some situations. Um, certain wasps and these are some of the same wasps that are maybe um, being a bit of a nuisance around picnics, for example. Um, but if they are trying to get soda out of a, a pop can at our picnic, um, they'll also go to flowers for nectar, for example. It's simply a, a simple carbohydrate source. So lots and lots of wasps and, and many wasps are actually beneficial, by the way. Very few are actually a stinging concern for us but wasps can be pollinators. Moths and butterflies can be pollinators. And, and moths often, when I interact with folks, they tend to have kind of a negative view about moths because they're, they're drab, they're gray and brownish, not particularly bright, although there are actually plenty of, of brightly um, colored and ornate moths out there. But moths can actually play a very, very important role in, in terms of pollination. It's just, they're doing it at night. So unless you go out with a flashlight, people have no idea that moths are doing this nocturnal pollination in many cases. And then flies actually can be very, very important pollinators. And there's been some studies that have looked at fly pollination around the globe. And especially you go uh, to more Northern latitudes, it basically gets too cold for bees to fly. And a lot of the pollination in, in some parts of the Arctic, for example, can be done by uh, certain fly families. Um, so flies can be excellent pollinators as well. Um, and there's other insects that can be pollinators too. Basically any insect that is going to a flower for either pollen as a protein source or nectar as a carbohydrate source, they're probably going to pick up some of those pollen grains on their body. And if they go to another flower nearby, they're going to be doing some pollination. So some like bees really evolve for that. They can be pound for pound great pollinators. There are other ones that are maybe a bit more hit or miss. They're doing some pollination, but they haven't specifically evolved for that purpose. But insects play a very critical role overall when it comes to pollination. And I suppose uh, a lot matters on, for instance, how a, how a, a given insect is shaped in terms of whether or not as they're flitting from flower to flower or whatever. The, the, the level of pollination that's going to occur. And does it have to do also with the configuration of different flowers, different blooms in terms of this insect sort of fits this flower? Is that part of what we're talking about as well? Yeah, so there's uh, quite a bit of variation, of course, when it comes to the, the structure of flowers. Some flowers are very big and, and open and insects can come and go 
as they please pretty readily. There are other flowers, for example, there's certain types of orchids where um, it, it almost forms a little bit of a trap and the insects kind of crawl in one way and they can't get back out easily. And it, it basically can kind of force them to do some pollination. Eventually the insects can um, get out. Uh, otherwise it, it wouldn't work very well for pollination in the grand scheme of things. But the insects are, are kind of forced to um, touch and, and contact some of the floral structures that uh, contain the pollen. And that way, when they leave, they have some on their bodies and can go to another flower and do the pollination. But also on your first point, in terms of insect anatomy, there's a lot of variation there. I just mentioned that some insects, like in general, a lot of our bees tend to be highly efficient pollinators in, in some cases. Reason for that is a lot of our bees, if you were to look at them under a microscope, they almost look like a fuzzy teddy bear. They have what we technically refer to as CD uh, on their body, um, but think of those as hairs. They basically have a, a really, really hairy body. And if you have all these hairs, pollen grains can get stuck on or amongst those hairs. Um, some bees uh, have specifically evolved um, certain patches of hairs on their hind legs, for example, so that they can really collect and kind of bundle the pollen there. But in general, a lot of uh, bees tend to have a very hairy appearance. Um, there are some other insects so that can have a pretty hairy appearance as well. Some of the flies, um, but also some of the wasps out there can have a, a very, very heavy um, kind of furry looking appearance. Lots of CD on the thorax or, or other parts of the body. Um, but you're right, there's a lot of variation in terms of how good of a pollinator a particular insect will be. And often the presence of those CD or hairs is gonna play an important role in that. But there's other anatomical features as well. Yes, and you know, interestingly enough, um, you know, our native plants have evolved right alongside our native insects so that they can accommodate one another. Um, one of my favorite woodland plants is wild ginger, uh, and it's a very low growing and slow growing plant. And, and the bloom is not something that you would necessarily notice unless you get down on the ground and pick it around amongst the leaves. It's a very tiny, uh, irregularly shaped flower. Um, but the blooms are right at soil level, the flowers. And um, there's a small beetle that pollinates that. And if the bloom were any higher up off of the soil level, the beetle would have a terrible time getting to that plant. And so, you know, its growth habits have certainly been influenced by its need to be pollinated and, and what pollinates it. So, yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. The whole thing is very fascinating. One thing I'd like to say is wasps are terribly misunderstood because we always think about, you know, German yellow jackets and getting stung and how much it hurts and they seem to pursue you relentlessly. So, um, but we have so many, so many actually what are quite beautiful wasp species um, that aren't necessarily aggressive like German yellow jackets. And I'm always fascinated by bald-faced hornets and their beautiful nests, you know, and um, they, they really don't, um, they're really not that aggressive unless you give them a reason to be, they're just protecting their, their nest and they're young. Um, so, you know, don't, don't be so quick to judge a wasp. Good, good you advice. Know, a lot of them quite lovely, yeah. So PJ Leash, when, when an insect is, is pollinating, um, is the insect in any way benefiting from pollinating or is it kind of a thing that it is just sort of in a sense inadvertently doing, accidentally doing while it's feeding? 
uh, I mean, I, we get how they benefit from the feeding, but I'm assuming insects do not ha have any direct benefit from this act of pollination in which they're engaging. Yeah, so that's an interesting question, Greg. I mean, when you think about it from the insects perspective, um, they are, of course, trying to reproduce and, and, you know, raise more of their own species. So their primary thing is when they're going to those floral structures, they are picking up either um, pollen and or nectar. Um, and again, pollen, a protein source, nectar, carbohydrate source. So that's new, direct nutrition for them, perhaps. But they may also be um, saving those materials to feed to their younger offspring. Um, so there's many insects that'll do that. A good example would be some of our solitary bees that essentially nest in uh, pre-existing tubes that could be a hollow plant stem or something along those lines. And they're gathering that pollen and nectar and they kind of bundle it up and, and wad it together and, and create a ball of it and lay an egg on that and then they seal it off. And so their young have all the resources they need to develop you could also think, though, um, tangentially, uh, if you have certain insects that are closely aligned with a very particular uh, plant species. So you have insects that are, are very host plant specific. Um, to a certain extent, if they're helping pollinate that plant and it ensures more of that plant for the future, that's going to be helping them out uh, as well. But I think the, the most important thing from the insect point of view is they're getting direct nutrition when they go to those floral structures that they can, again, either feed themselves or, or feed their offspring. So one of the things that uh, Nan wants to be sure we explore is uh, what kind of choices somebody can make in terms of their garden and lawn, uh, in terms of choosing plants that will be beneficial to this whole process and plants that are likely to be sort of inviting uh, to many of these native pollinators uh, that we need to have more of all around us. So um, is it as simple as just picking from a list of the right plants and planting them and, and it all just happens then? Or are, are there subtleties that are involved in some of these choices? Well, I mean, there will be some, some subtleties. For example, if you are hoping to attract very specific species of insects, say you want to attract a, a certain uh, species of butterfly, and let's use monarch because that's a very, very well-known example. Um, you know, if you don't have uh, milkweed plants in your yard, you're just not going to have the caterpillar stage of that. You may have some adults flying in because the adults will go to a wide range of plants as nectar sources. But there's many examples of that where the larval or juvenile stage of certain insects is very host plant specific. So if you want to see or help out those particular insects, you really have to make some specific choices in terms of what types of plants you wanna put in. And, and some folks may have an interest in doing that. However, I think there's also a lot to be said about about simply having a diversity of plants overall because then you can really help out a very, very wide range of insects. And the reason I say that, again, is um, some of the insects that are out there are essentially picky eaters. They may go to one certain type of plant or, or maybe a certain plant genus or a plant family and not 
all the other plants out there. Um, and so if we have a diversity of blooming plants out there, we're offering, you know, a buffet of different types of food that these insects can take advantage of. And a reason that that can be uh, important, of course, we're attracting a diversity of pollinators. But when you look at insects and, and the roles that they play, um, people sometimes try to box them in and say, this insect is a pollinator and it doesn't do anything else. But that isn't the case. If you think about wasps as a good example, um, even some that you just mentioned, Nan, like the yellow jackets and bald-faced hornets and, and paper wasps, um, those are actually insects that play many, many different roles out in the environment. Yes, they can do some pollination when they go to uh, flowers, but also those can act as beneficial predators. So they may be uh, picking off some pest uh, species in our vegetable garden, for example, because they have to take that protein back to feed to their young in the nest. Um, so the more diversity we have overall, that's going to help out the greatest numbers of insects out there. Uh, in terms of, of plants to look at, there is definitely value in going with native plants. Sometimes they can be a little bit harder to find. But again, our native insects have evolved with those native plants for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So that can really help them out. There are certain plants that, um, you know, maybe aren't necessarily native to our area, but still can provide some value in, in terms of nectar and, and pollen. But one thing that folks should be aware of, um, if you go down to say the, the garden center and you're looking at uh, plants, there are certain plants that may look great to humans um, because those plants were bred um, to be very visually appealing. Maybe they have double flowers where the flowers just have mega density in terms of the number of petals on the flower. And, and those may look great, but uh, those particular flowers may have very uh, little or perhaps no pollen or nectar available for the insects. So you put a bunch of these in your yard, you're thinking, great, uh, you know, beautiful flowers, it's going to help out the pollinators, and you may be offering them very little or nothing to feed on. So folks do need to be aware of that. So that's a reason why um, going with native plants uh, can often be a, a good route to go. So... Uh, when we're when we're talking about then planting a nice diverse mix, would you have specific suggestions for people in terms of kind of a starting point? Oh, that's a, a great question, um, and, and often it can be a little tough just as, as a starting point because you really have to chat with an individual and see what their goals are. Um, we had just mentioned a minute ago, uh, some folks may be trying to attract um, certain specific insects. And, and I had mentioned monarchs. And, and these days we hear a lot in the news about monarchs declining. So a lot of folks are wanting to put in plants like milkweed. Um, and, and so certainly that's an option for them. But everyone seems to have slightly different goals. So there's not one specific formula in terms of, you know, put these 10 plants in your yard and, and you know, that's it. And that's all you can do. Um, and, and everyone also differs in terms of how much free time they have to actually do gardening, how much space they have, um, and, and so on. There may be constraints in terms of time and, and area to put plants in. So there really isn't one set formula. But again, just in general, I, I feel the more diversity you have in terms of plants, you're going to be attracting the pollinators, but you're also attracting beneficial uh, predators and parasites and other creatures as well. So I, I think that's the most important thing. Um, are there resources uh, that you would direct people to towards uh, in terms of sort of finding out what some of their options are and uh, how to even 
find these plants? Yeah, so there are a bunch of good resources, and Nan, I'll certainly let you uh, chime in as, as well. I know that um, uh, UW-Madison Extension, for example, has a, a couple of fact sheets and bulletins that discuss our native bees and some of the plants that can be um, put in to provide resources for those insects. Um, one of my favorite websites is uh, pollinator.org, and if you go to that website, there's actually an area you can type in your zip code, and it will um, basically spit out uh, or link you to a PDF um, basically of a regional planting guide. So you could be anywhere in the U.S. and, and access this document and it'll give you a, a booklet which is probably about 8, 10, 12 pages long. has a list of uh, certain plants in there, trees, shrubs, flowers, things like that, just to give you some ideas in terms of what kinds of in, uh, plants you could put in to benefit those insects. So um, I know when I, I think about Wisconsin, I think depending on where you're in the state, we maybe have two or three-ish um, different zones uh, from the pollinator.org website, but uh, there's many, many resources like that. And, and Nan, if you have any additional ones, uh, by all means, please share. Yes, uh, Wisconsin is really lucky because uh, we have a number of native plant propagating firms here, uh, and other states just don't have that kind of, of a resource. Uh, if you'd like a list of those, you can certainly email me at nan at rootpikewind.org, or you can go to our website and we have a list. Uh, there's a wonderful person by the name of Heather Holm, who's written about three or four books now, and actually she just had one come out and it's all about wasps, uh, which is really good. It'll kind of change your mind about um, the sort of negative connotations that go with wasps. But she's written a couple of really, really good books about our native pollinators and the plants that they need to survive. And because she's in Minnesota, um, many, many of the plants that she lists are also native here in Wisconsin. And certainly Doug Tallamy, um, his website, Bringing Nature Home, uh, any of the books that he's written, excellent resources. He is on the East Coast. Uh, so you do have to then uh, translate that information into what's native here in southeastern Wisconsin. Uh, but yes, there are excellent resources out there for people to use. And, you know, um, you know, if there's only one thing you can do, which is often the case, plant a, a native oak, because native oak trees support well over 500, I think it's up to something like 557 different species of moths and butterflies doesn't hurt the tree and it certainly benefits uh, our native uh, insects uh, but there's a lot it, a lot people can do obviously you know don't use pesticides on your lawn um, have a diverse landscape as PJ said monocultures of grass don't support insects whatsoever um, and yeah plant native plants that's what they need they're hardwired to recognize what they need very good. Uh, PJ Leash, uh, if people would like more information about uh, UW, uh, UW's ex uh, Insect Diagnostic Laboratory or any of the other things that you're involved in, uh, is there a place they can go? Yes, Greg. Uh, so the easiest way to track me down, if you simply hop online and do a Google search uh, for UW Insect Diagnostic Lab, um, you should be able to find my website right away. Uh, I'm also active on Twitter as at 
WI bug guy. Uh, and I usually <laughs> post fairly frequently all insect related stuff one way or another, but uh, I'm usually pretty easy to track down online. If, if you do head to my website, I've got all kinds of great information. I post uh, monthly blog articles on insects that are maybe active at a certain time of the year, or uh, maybe are in the news like Asian giant hornets and, and stuff like that. Um, so feel free to check out my website, uh, sign up if you like to get those uh, my website on a, a wide range of topics. Very good. Uh, PJ Leash uh, with the UW Insect Diagnostic Laboratory. And I'm so happy to hear that you're uh, from Racine originally, a Case High School graduate, and you're doing your alma mater proud. And we appreciate you being part of the morning show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nan, do you have anything to add in terms of announcements? I don't have any announcements at the moment. Uh, one thing I will say, though, I guess it is an announcement. Uh, Root Pipe Watershed Initiative Network is beginning a series of training sessions uh, for the general public. Uh, and we have sessions planned all the way through spring of 2022. Uh, and so we're going to be doing things like beginning botany, uh, invasive species, plant identification, um, uh, all, all kinds of things, managing stormwater on your property. Uh, so if you're interested in those or think you might be interested, please go to our website and check them out. We'll be announcing them on Facebook. We're doing these classes, training sessions for a couple of different reasons. Obviously, uh, we would love to have a cadre of skilled volunteers uh, to participate in our restoration projects. Uh, and other things as well, participate at our events, all, all kinds of things. But we are also interested in helping to build an environmentally literate society so people can go back out there in the world and you know, do good things in their own landscapes and hopefully influence people in their neighborhood to do the same kinds of things. So check them out. I think they're gonna be very enjoyable and uh, we hope people sign up. What a great- so I guess I did have an announcement, didn't I? Yes. <laughs> and a good one. That's, that's, a, that's a great idea, and we hope a lot of people will certainly seek that out. Uh, Nan Calvert is with Rip Pike Wynn, and again, PJ Leash with uh, the UW Insect Diagnostic Laboratory. Thank you both for this interesting conversation, and best wishes to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. PJ. Thanks for having me today. You're welcome.